the lines. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Gary knew it, right? Gary got it right. Was that you, Gary? Got it right off the bat. Those are lines from a movie I've never watched. I know, I know, but you just should assume if it's a movie, Zach hasn't seen it. I don't really watch movies. I actually had to look up where those lines came from. A few good men. Apparently, it's a pretty epic movie. But yet, though I've never seen that movie, I like quoting those lines. You know? I don't know what it is. I don't even know the context of those lines. But for some, some reason, I like screaming, you can't handle the truth. I don't know why. I'm pretty sure I've done that in, in multiple fights with Jennifer. You know, it's like, <laughs> we're having a, you, 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 don't, you know, like, I want the truth. You can't handle it. I don't, never seen it. But I'll tell you what, th- those lines actually really apply to our text today. There's a, bit where, there's a bit in our text today where the people of Nazareth couldn't handle the truth. Now, just like those lines and me quoting them, there's also something quoted from our passage of Scripture today that gets quoted all the time by people who've never read that passage of Scripture. And it's this. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, just think about the number of people that you've probably heard make that quote who don't know its meaning. And today we're going to dive in, and at the end of the day, you will know its meaning. So here's the big truth that I want us to walk away with today from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Here's the big truth. The scandal of God's grace is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the scandal of God's grace. It's the good news of the gospel. We hear it as good news, but to those who don't understand it as good news, they see it as a scandal. There's there's public outrage at it, and we're going to see that in the text. The scandal of God's grace is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I want to start off by just reading verses 14 and 15, and then we're going to dive in and we're going to read the rest of the text, okay? And so this is really helping us bridge the gap from where we were last week with Jesus uh, there in the, in the desert in, in his temptation with Satan up until this moment. And so starting in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so, Jesus comes out of the temptation, and he he goes into Galilee. And so, that is the northernmost region, kind of what we would think of, of, of Israel. This is the northernmost region. And so, in between, like, Jerusalem... And the, the area of Galilee would be the, the, the region there of Samaria. Okay, And so he had been doing ministry uh, to the north. Um, man, this, this is an area that's about 25 miles wide and about 40 miles long. So you got to think that's definitely smaller than the, the county that we live in, right? This region that he's doing ministry in of Galilee. He is dipping down some into Samaria probably, uh, just, just a little bit into one town. And what he is doing is he's going and teaching in the synagogues. And so, this is all we know. 
We don't even know how long. This could have been months. Uh, this could have been years. We can kind of look at where uh, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, put this account. Uh, they put it a little later. Um, Luke puts it right off the bat. And so many scholars think that there was actually a significant amount of time that was happening between the two. Okay, So that's a short explanation. He's in this region of Galilee. And he's going around preaching in the synagogues and he, being glorified by all. He was a hit, right? He, he, he was, people were coming to faith. People were, were uh, seeing who he was and going, okay, this is the Messiah who's coming. This guy this guy's something. This guy's the real deal. So, starting in verse 16, and now we're going to read through 30. And so read along with me. I, I want your eyes on this. You've got to pay attention to this text. There's a lot going on. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to pro proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said... Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up. And drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We'll start in verse 16. I'm going to try my best to make this sermon not take three hours. But I want you to understand something. There is so much scripture jammed into this, this, this text. There's so many points. Goodness gracious. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Here's my first big idea. is that Christians gather on the Lord's day for the preaching of God's word. This is what Christians ought to do. This was Jesus' example. So notice, he's in Nazareth, the town that he was born in. And what other, what other statement do we know about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? That was, that was often said. So he's in Nazareth, 
And it was his custom that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. That would mean that Jesus, his entire life, had gone to the synagogue. We know he had good parents. We know they, they, did, they, were, they were zealous to do the right thing. And so we know that that would have been his whole life. But this had been what he was doing in his ministry. He was going to the synagogue. He was opening up the, the scroll. We, we know a little bit about what happened in the synagogues. Remember, a synagogue isn't, this isn't the Jewish temple. This is like an outpost, if you will. Um, it, synagogues actually, they're, they're not even, they're not something that's mandated in Scripture. It's actually even a, a Greek word. There's something that came about, and this would be like the town center. You had to have at least 10 men, 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. And so, these are these, these centers. He would come, they would, they would probably have um, copies of the Torah. Uh, and then a few other scrolls or other things. It wasn't likely that they had the entire Old Testament. They wouldn't have had everything that the temple in Jerusalem had. Uh, it's obvious that they had the, the, the scroll of Isaiah. And so he does what he does. He, he goes on the Sabbath and he, he stood up to read. I want to show you this. This is important. This is going to be important later. The Lord, when he created the earth... He made the earth in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And from that comes what we call the Sabbath. It's what was, what was prescribed in the, the Old Testament. You know, you honor the Sabbath day, you keep the Sabbath day holy. Saturday is the Sabbath day. In the New Testament, we no longer, we no longer, uh, we're not Sabbatarians. We don't practice this, the Sabbath. What we practice is the Lord's day. It's Sunday. So post-Jesus, what we do is, is we, we come together and we come together on the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. It's the first, first day of the week. Okay, um, We do the first day of the week because we're saying, hey, we want to give our first time, just like we want to say when we give our, our tithe, our first fruits. It's a first fruits author, offering. We're saying the first day of the week is Sunday and we're giving it to the Lord. Sabbath has something that has come up in our culture a lot lately. And if you're, you're reading, what's happening is people are working hours and hours on end. A lot of people are working seven, uh, working seven days a week. Your email doesn't leave you alone. Your job doesn't leave you alone. You're thinking about it on Sunday, and it's wearing people down. And so people are going, hey, we got to take a day off and rest. You're right, you do. God, God, God said that in the scriptures. And let me tell you how you do it. It's not, it's, not, it's not a spa day. It's not a self-help day. It's a worship day. That's what the Sabbath is. It's a day to gather for worship. You give Sunday to the Lord. I've got a friend who every Saturday night he tweets, Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And I disagree. I like the quote. I get what he's saying in the quote. He's saying, on Saturday night, you need to determine that you're taking your family to church on Sunday morning. That the gathering of the Lord's people is important. I disagree. Sunday morning church, Lord's Day worship, is a decision that you make when you give your life to Christ. You're saying, I'm, giving, I'm going to follow in obedience. I'm going to give my life to worshiping the Lord. And so, man, my family doesn't have to wonder on Saturday night, are we going to church on Sunday? They just know we're going to church on Sunday. Right? Now, that doesn't mean there aren't things that come up, and that doesn't mean there's not vacations, and there's different things. There's travel, there's sickness, there's those things. Right? But those need to be an exception, not the decision. 
And so I want you to understand something, and this is going to be key. The Lord has designed us as believers that we would work six days and rest seven. Work six, six days and, and rest, rest on the seventh, rest on the one. And so for us, it's, it's the first. What do we do when we gather for worship and rest? We hear the preaching of the word. There is nothing that will revive your soul like the preaching of the word. I've never had a pedicure or a manicure. But I am pretty sure that my spa day will not fill me up the way that the scriptures fill me up. I love going to the mountains. I love getting alone. I can be refreshed, right? I can go. Uh, as, as an extrovert who goes all the time, sometimes for me, being by myself is good. But it, it, nothing compares to being with the body, being with the gathering of Christians and hearing the word preached to fill you up. So commit your life to gathering with God's people and hearing God's word on the Lord's day, on Sunday morning. Verse 17, and this is what they did, and we're going to get in the meat of this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And so let me, let me, let me, this was, let me show you this. This was not, he didn't have a Bible, so it wasn't just flipping to it, right? This was a scroll. There were tons of rules around how the scroll, the paper that it had to be on, the quality of what it was on. They unroll this. Think about the book of Isaiah. It's like bunches and bunches and bunches of, of words, right? Um, in the scroll, we have, we have chapters in our Bible, right? There would have been no, no chapters, no verses. It's all just written there. And so he opens this scroll, and he scrolls to what we call chapter 61. It would have just been deep into the, the, the book of Isaiah. And, and this is what Jesus reads. Now, this is, this is from what would be 61, and a little bit before, up above it, would have been in 58. He's kind of blending the two things together, and he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's my, here's my next big idea that I want you to see. Is that Jesus came to save us from our spiritual condition. Jesus came to save us from our spiritual condition. Remember last week, one of my big ideas is we were talking about Satan and, and, and Jesus in the desert. And it was that Jesus came to fight a spiritual battle. Jesus came to fight a spiritual battle, not a physical one. And one of the things that so calls confusion for people is that they, that people wanted Jesus to fight a physical battle. They wanted the Roman government to fall. They wanted those to oppress them to fall. They wanted their, their illness cured. They wanted all those things, right? But that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus came to, 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 to fight a spiritual battle, not, not just a physical one. In the same way, he's not coming just to to heal our physical condition, but our spiritual condition. And so let's break apart those, those, those four things, really five things, that he said that he came to do. Proclaim good news to the poor. That word poor, translated, is the same word that is used in the Beatitudes when Jesus says in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Are these physically poor people? Probably. They probably are. Is he trying to, to physically handle their, their monetary problems? No, he's not. We don't walk away from looking at the Gospels and seeing Jesus minister the poor and see them walk away wealthy, do we? No, they walk away saved. They walk away in belief. Now, whatever blessing or something comes from the, the way in which God has, has called us to live and designed us to live and we live that way, man, in wisdom, in God's wisdom, sure, blessings come from it. But it's not, he didn't just come to make you wealthy, right? Proclaim liberty to the captives. So there's those who were, who were captive, and so we think, we think in, in prison, we think those who are enslaved of some sort, that we would pro- proclaim liberty to them. But yet, do we see that he, he set them physically free? No, he came to set them spiritually free. Recovering sight to the blind. Now, do we see, see Jesus restore uh, physical sight to some? Yes, we do. But a greater picture for us is this. It's Paul on the road to Damascus when Jesus healed his sight and allowed him to see him. When he called this, caused the scales to fall off of his eyes and set liberty to those who are oppressed. Man, they're hearing, they're hearing this and they're thinking, man, the Romans are oppressing us. But yet, Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. He's, he's speaking spiritually here. Now, there's a lot that can be said. And a lot of, a lot of, a lot of times this could get taken out of, out of context and used for social justice. Or to say, hey, we're going to do these things. We're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna set the captives free. We're going to store sight to the blind. So we're going to start a, a vision ministry. And we're going we're gonna to have a ministry to prisoners. Here's what I'll tell you. Those are good things. And those are things the churches are called to do elsewhere. We, we see that. We see that the, the church is, is, is called to feed the poor. The church is called to minister to those who are imprisoned. We see that the church is, is called to set the captive free. I mean, that's why, that's why we have people that, that weekly, when we give money to, I mentioned sin relief. One of the divisions of sin relief is fighting human trafficking. We have people that when, when, when you pull up that app and you give money, a percentage of that money somehow along the way is making its way to fight human trafficking. Matter of fact, right now at the Super Bowl, because the Super Bowl is a huge sex trafficking event, we have people from our network of churches who are there ready to save women who are caught in sex trafficking. Right? We believe that. So it's certainly that. It's, it's definitely not less than that, but it's absolutely more than that. I want you to understand, you've heard me say this before. We are not called to make the world a better place to go to hell from. That's not the call, right? We're called to make the world a better place. But ultimately what we're doing is, 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 is bringing, fixing spiritual problems, spiritual darkness so that people can go to heaven where all things will be made new. Where there is no more poverty. Where there, there is no more oppression. Where there are no more captives. Where the blind can see. That is the message that we're bringing. And so Jesus came to save us from our spiritual condition. And I want you to understand what he's saying here. Isaiah wrote this. Full of the Holy Spirit. Right? 
Jesus is saying, Isaiah wrote that about me and it's being fulfilled in me. The, Lord is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind. He's saying, these things are about me. I am the answer to the problem. But he says one more thing. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We could spend the rest of the day unpacking what this means, the year of the Lord's favor. In Leviticus chapter 25, we see the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And this is what was commanded in the book of Leviticus. This was the instruction to the Israelites. That there's seven days in a week. Right? And you rest on the seventh. Every seven years, you don't plant crops, you don't harvest crops, you don't prune your bushes, you let the ground rest. And so, every seven days, you need a Sabbath. But, but every seven years, we're going to let the ground rest. We're going to let the earth have a Sabbath. This was the year of Jubilee. That seven years of seven would go by. Seven times seven, 49. On the next year, the 50th year is the year of Jubilee. Okay, that was the year of Jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor. This is what it says. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The land in ancient Israel was, was not bought uh, the way that we do, right? It's not passed deed to deed to deed to deed. It was meant to stay in a family. And so a piece of property was meant to stay with it extended from, from generation to generation, but occasionally what would happen is somebody would fall on hard times and they wouldn't be able to manage the land. Something, they would be sick. Uh, they, they would have something happen to them. They couldn't manage it. So they would have to sell that land. And they would sell that land. It was known, so you bought this knowing this, that in the Jubilee year it would be returned to the rightful owner. And they would have a chance to... to, to, to gain back, to have a fresh start, to be back on your, your home place. So what was the purpose of this liberty in the 50th year? It was, it was not merely to release the poor from their financial problems. The purpose was also to restore to the poor the ability to be economically productive. The, the Jubilee year didn't just entail this redistribution of land um, people in our, our culture probably hear like redistribution of land, debt forgiveness, uh, loan forgiveness. This sounds wonderful. Not, not the same thing that's, that's going on. It was not a handout of bread. It wasn't a charity, but the restoration to family units, the opportunity and resources to provide for themselves. So if Jesus then portrays his liberating work in terms of this jubilee legislation, what do we conclude from that about the freedom he has come to announce? How does this jubilee year inform the way that we live our Christian life? This jubilee 
we've experienced. This jubilee happens at salvation. It's deliverance from the oppressive debt of sin. This is glorious. It's this freedom that comes from sin. It's, it's our year of jubilee happens when, when our debts are forgiven of us. We're brought home that we may truly be productive, bearing the, the, the fruit of someone who has changed their heart, that God has changed their heart. There's really no proof in the Bible that the, the year of Jubilee ever happened. It was said, do this. But we don't see it mentioned again. And so many scholars believe that it never happened and that that's why they had the issues they had. And that's why they were sold into captivity. That's why all these other things happened, that they got away from this, that they weren't willing to let the ground rest, that they weren't willing to, to release the debtors of their debt. And so what is Jesus saying he's coming to do? I'm going to set the captive free. I'm going to release the press. I'm going to give liberty. I'm going to give this sight. And I'm going to set the debtors free. I am announcing to you that this is the year of Jubilee. There is a new era, and it's an era of Jubilee. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Is that not incredible? That, that, that should make you sing Amazing Grace in a total different way, realizing that your debts are gone, that he paid the price. As we sing that, our chains are gone. We've been set free. This is why Jesus came, to solve this spiritual problem, to meet us in our spiritual condition. But if you flip back to Isaiah 61, you're actually going to find something really interesting. There's a part that Jesus left out. This is what Jesus didn't say. This is, this is 61. Jed, Jed read it. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. He, he took something out. The day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus quote in the day of the vengeance of our God? This is what we would call a mystery. This would be a mystery to the prophet Isaiah. This would have been mystery. This was a mystery to John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't get this. He, he didn't under, understand what was going on here. But this is like a two-part play or a movie with a sequel. Is Jesus the one, as prophesied, that would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God? Yes. But we're only seeing act one here. We're only seeing the first revelation of that, that this is Jesus showing up. Many would want his wrath because they want the wrath pointed at the Roman government or those that oppressed them. They want it pointed at the rich, not, not at those who, who have seen themselves poor or whatever else. But where does the vengeance of God come from? The vengeance of God happens in, in the return of Christ. And so this period that we're in is between, we're in the favor of the Lord. We're in the year of Jubilee, and we're waiting on the return of Christ. I don't know if you've read the whole book, but when you get to the end, when you get to Revelation, you're going to see that Christ is going to return, and he's coming to get his people, but then to put on his wrath of those who rejected him. So we're living in a moment of grace. 
This morning, uh, a man came to our church, and he was strung out. Um, he, buddy, buddy talked with him. Um, he shot straight with Buddy. He was, did meth yesterday, drank all night long, and he was all over the place. Dude could barely. He was riding a bike, which is super dangerous. I, don't, I just wouldn't recommend driving, riding a bike on meth or, or drunk. And he's, he's here, and Buddy says to him, He's, he, he says to Buddy, I want to come in your church, but I can't. And Buddy goes, oh, man, you can't. He goes, no, I can't. I can't go in there. He's, like, talking about his sin. And Buddy's like, Psh, everybody in there is a sinner. You come on. He goes, dude, I can't, I can't be still. He was twitching or whatever. And Buddy just, Buddy just pleaded with him, gave him his phone number, gave him his card, and said, man, it's not too late. God can help you. There is grace for you. And I want you to understand something. That is every one of us in this room. It is not too late for you. We are living in the day, the favor of the Lord, in the, in the, in the year of Jubilee. And so we're in this period where you can. Christ has not returned yet. He is not bringing his, his vengeance and his wrath yet. You are in a place where you can repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ. Jesus came to solve your greatest problems. And it's our spiritual conditions. It's that, that, that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. This would have been normal. Okay, so they would read from the scroll and they would sit down. And from the sitting down position, then they would begin to exposit, uh, to talk about the scriptures that they, they read. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Here's my next big idea. Is that we reject the truth of Jesus when we don't like what he says. That's when we reject the truth of Jesus. There are things that Jesus says that we think, oh, that's great, and we accept it. Right? We, that's why in the world it's often said that Jesus was a good philosopher. Right? And, and they'll, they'll take the, the statements like, turn the other cheek or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? There's love your neighbor as yourself. There's those, these things that, we, that, that, that the world hears and they're like, oh, I like that. But when they hear something that he doesn't like, which typically has to do with a sin in which you're involved in, then you're ready to, then you're ready to go... Who is this guy? He's just a man, right? He's like, not like the dude was God. He was just a man. And here's, here's where this, this prophet has no honor in his hometown. Man, this is just Joseph's son, right? Was this Joseph's son? Well, yes. But on the other hand, he's God's son, right? That's why this is God's son. This is why it's over and over and over in the book of Luke we're seeing, yeah, this is Joseph's son. What was he supposed to call him? The child that's not really mine? My semi-quasi-adopted son? No. Yeah, this is Joseph's son. Yes, Joseph. Remember, this is God's son. 
Oh, man, you, you know, this is Joseph's son. Don't you remember his little kid? I mean, I never saw him do anything wrong, but, man, his brothers, James and, and Jude and Joseph, those, those guys were nuts. They're bad. And their sisters, good gosh, right? Prophet has no honor in his, in his hometown. And so what you're going to see in this passage is he's saying the scriptures have been fulfilled. This is me. I'm here. The things that he was saying, they rejected because they did not like what he was saying. And so here you see their lack of faith. He says, doubtless you'll say this. You'll say this. You won't have faith. And we reject the truth of Jesus when we don't like what he says. I'll tell you this. <clears throat> in the deconstruction movement, it's so interesting to me and how we're seeing all these celebrities, all these people deconstruct. And, and it doesn't start with, here are the logical fallacies I see in the Bible. Here are the logical kind of problems that I see. These are the things that really shake my faith. Let it start from there. It's typically not where it starts. It starts with, here's a sin that I want to do. Typically it's around sex. It's some sort of sexual sin. Possibly even the, often homosexuality, the accepting of homosexuality. Here's the sin. I don't like what the Bible says about it. I, I, I don't want to live this. I want to transition this. The world says this is okay. I want to do this. And so the deconstruction typically starts with a sin, and then it begins to ripple into let this sow doubt and problems and other things. I don't like the Bible says about this, so let me figure out ways that I can reject truth by justifying why the Bible is wrong. Rather than flipping that on its head and going, okay, this, is this true? Is this logical? Is it, is it practical? Is this real? Can this be supported? Therefore, it says I should not do this sin, therefore I submit myself to it. It's flipped on its head. This is what we do. We reject the truth of Jesus when we don't like what he says. Verse 25. Here it comes. This is going to be more support of what I just said. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land, in, in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So this is a story of a Gentile woman. So not a Jewish woman, but a Gentile woman. Her name was Zarephath. This is 1 Kings 17. She and her child were about to starve to death. There was a great famine in the land. And literally, they were down to their last bit of food. It was some flour and some oil. It was the last bit of food. And Elijah comes up, his prophet, and says... By the way, and remember, there's tons, it's a famine in the land. There's tons of other people starving. And he comes up to her, and he says, make me a biscuit. I don't know exactly what he said, but essentially that's what he said. Make me a biscuit. And this would have been her last piece of bread. And she's saying, hey, I'm gonna eat, we're going to eat this bread, and we're going to starve to death. And now all of a sudden, the last, her last meal, he says, give it to me. You know what she does? She gives it to him. She was hopeless. She knew she was going to die. 
What did she have to lose but to trust in this prophet who says he's from God? And so he gives it to her. She gives it to him. And he eats it. And do you know what happens? That her flour and her oil never ran out. That by faith, by her not rejecting that, by not, by in, in her poverty, her benevolence was honored. The reward was that her barrel of flour and her oil never ran out. You and I hear that story and we think, man, that is awesome. That's not what they heard. The second example. There were many lepers in Israel in the times of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian, also a Gentile. He was cured of leprosy by Elisha. And so um, here... um, he comes, he is a, a, a prince, and uh, he's sent to be healed. And there, it's going, okay, there's this prophet, his name is Elisha, and he can heal people of leprosy. And so there's tons of lepers, but he comes to him for healing. And when he gets there, he's expecting one thing. He's expecting, okay, this Syrian is coming Elisha is going to come out to me. He's going to do this big to do. He's going to make a big to do over me because I'm a prince and he's going to heal me and he's going to send me back. But that's not the reception he got. Essentially, he gets there and Elisha's like, Tell him to go wash in the river seven times. Naaman's like, Don't you know who I am? I'm, I'm a prince. And you want me to go wash in that dirty river when where I came from? The water's pure and clean. It's beautiful. I'll just go back home. Some of his servants basically say to him, what are you doing? This guy can heal you of your leprosy. Humble yourself. Bring yourself down. Humble yourself. Do what he says and be healed. And so they humble themselves. He humbles him. Naaman humbles himself and he goes and he dips himself in the river seven times and he's healed of leprosy. Now we hear those stories again. Isn't that a beautiful story? The guy humbled himself and he was healed. Listen to what happens here. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town. Why were they filled up with wrath? Because they were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. And the self-righteous people in this room that are going, hearing Jesus teach, and they're rejecting the truth that he taught because they are self-righteous. They don't want to hear it. They, they don't want to hear it. They're not, they're, they're not the ones who are poor. They're not the ones who are uh, uh, oppressed. They're, they're not this. We don't need your salvation. Who are you? And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought to him the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And here's my next big idea is that Jesus died to save those who wanted to kill him. That's the scandal of the gospel. 
is that Jesus died to save those who wanted to kill him. Now, he didn't let him kill him. It wasn't his appointed time to die, so he just, he, 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 he just slips through their midst. But this self-righteous group of people who, who look, who hate what he had to say because he's saying, I came to, to, to set those free, the, the, the poor, those who have rejected, that, that, they, that have rejected God, their spiritual condition. And they're going, you're not talking about me. You're talking about the Gentiles. You're talking about those other people not realizing that their spiritual condition was that of a poor man. Their spiritual condition was that of a, a captive, that of an oppressed person, that of a, a blind man. In their self-righteousness, they could not see their own sin. And so they wanted to kill him. And it's, that's the beauty of the gospel. Where are you in this story? You're either two places. You're either a person who realizes, I am the poor. I am poor in spirit. I am broken. I am a sinful being. I know my thoughts. I know my heart. I know my wicked ways. I know my rebellion. You're a captive. Right? You are captive. You, you are captive. You are enslaved by the things of the world. You're enslaved to the bottle. You're enslaved to gambling. You're enslaved to pornography, to lust, to greed, to money. You're enslaved to those things. You realize you are blind, that you cannot see, that there are scales on your eyes, and it is God who makes them fall off. You realize you needed the year of the Lord's favor. That you needed the Lord to set you free. Or you're the people in the synagogue in Nazareth. And you're rejecting Jesus and saying, Who is this, Joseph's son? That's your only two options. And so today, here's my urge to you. is to humble yourself just like Naaman. To bring yourselves into the water that is, is the, the good news of the, the gospel, the baptismal waters, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no doubt in my mind that years later, a couple years later, when Jesus is finally on the cross, when he's being crucified on the cross, that he's recounting all the encounters that he had. All, the, 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 all the, 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 the blind man, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, he's in, one after one, he's going through, he's recounting the, the things that he had. He thought about his home church. He thought about his home congregation, and he had mercy on them. That if they would just believe, if they would just confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised his son from the dead, they would be saved. Jesus, on that cross, on Calvary, dying the death he did not deserve, taking on the wrath. They had wrath for him, and yet he is taking God's wrath. He's taking, he's taking God's wrath for us. He's taking God's wrath for the people who wanted to kill him. That is the scandal of the gospel. And so today, friends, I just tell you in this word, 
Believe the Lord Jesus and be saved. Place your faith and your trust in Christ. Don't say to Jesus, hey, perform these tricks and I'll place my faith in you. Do these things for me and I'll place my faith for you just like his home church did. But rather say, Lord, I'm giving myself fully to you. Be the widow who's given her bread away and saying, here, Lord, take it. Everything I have, it's yours. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, may we live by it. May we believe it. May we not reject it. May we believe truth. May we see it and, 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 and not reject it, not think it's scandalous, not think, oh, how can that be that Jesus would die for them? And we go, no. Jesus died for everyone who would call upon his name. Lord, may we not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but may we see our own brokenness, the depravity of our sin. And Lord, may you use it for your glory and your honor. May you do a great work in us, Lord. Set us free. Give us sight. Let us live in the year of the Lord's favor. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship as the scriptures are true because they are.